Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. A new week dawns with no Speaker of the House and no ground invasion of Gaza. Welcome to the fastest show in politics as we pick things up on this Monday. The House returning to the Capitol with a Speaker's race that starts all over again today with now nine candidates vying for the gavel. And the U.S. meantime beefing up its presence in the Middle East on concerns of a potentially widening conflict. We're joined this hour by Terry Haynes of Pangea Policy on next steps in finding a speaker. And with new polling now showing Donald Trump feeling the pitch of RFK's independent run for president. We're going to get analysis from our signature panel on all these stories. Bloomberg Politics contributors Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are with us for the hour. Where it begins anew, members of the House trickling back into town here as they are set to start the process all over again. Of course, the process of finding a new speaker. Republicans holding a closed-door candidates forum once again tonight. Starts 6.30 p.m. Washington time if you're playing along on your home game. And we have the largest number of candidates we have seen yet now. Nine members of the House running for speaker. Nine so where's the count when you need him? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Yes, nine. And most Americans have never heard of them. Congressman Tom Emmer, the majority whip, by the nature of his job, may be the best known. But none seem to have a path to 217. And the man who last held the job put it this way yesterday on Meet the Press. This is not a time to play games. This is, a, this is embarrassing for the Republican Party. It's embarrassing for the nation. Embarrassing, says Kevin McCarthy. Michael McCall, who of course chairs the House Foreign Affairs Committee, was with us last week here on Bloomberg, echoing the sentiment on ABC this week. I have to say, uh, it's my 10th term in Congress. Yeah. This is probably one of the most embarrassing uh, things I've seen, because if we don't have a Speaker of the House, we can't govern. And every day it goes by, we're essentially shut down as a government. We have very important issues right now, war and peace, and we cannot deal with an aid package or my resolution condemning Hamas and supporting Israel. We can't. You can't even pass a resolution condemning Hamas. A resolution. Never mind a bill. Which brings us to Billy House, Bloomberg Congress reporter. He's back with us now. With big question marks at the start of this week. Billy, it's good to see you. You're with us from the House of Representatives, where this is all about to tip off here. We've got nine candidates. How's it going to work here when voting begins? They all kind of make their stump speech tonight, and then each round will bring some level of progress tomorrow. Is that how you see it? Exactly. Tonight around 630, they gather behind closed doors for what seems like it'll be a little bit like Hollywood Squares. Uh, Nine candidates. Uh, each giving brief opening remarks and then uh, one and a half hour question and answer period, followed by closing remarks. Then tomorrow morning, 
they begin balloting behind closed doors. And of course, there's no winner until somebody gets a majority of the 221 member conference. And that's a 111 votes. And that yeah. could take several rounds. Uh, each each round, the lowest uh, vote getter drops out. And so okay. it could go for a long time. So this is kind of like a ranked choice thing, I guess. Maybe that's not what we call it. But to Billy's point, each each vote, you, the, the person who got the least rolls off the back. So the idea here is that by the end of the day, uh, we've coalesced around someone. And Tom Emmer keeps getting the talk here. He's the majority whip. Billy, by the nature of his job, you'd think he might have the institutional wherewithal to get this done. But they said the same thing about Steve Scalise. How does it play for Tom Ever? Right, exactly. He's probably at the top of the list. There's others that are very competitive, maybe Byron Donalds, uh, maybe Kevin Hearn, who uh, headed an informal caucus of conservatives. But the problem with Scalise and, uh, and Jordan both were that they got the 111. They just couldn't get the 217 on the House floor. And uh, Emmer has had a longstanding kind of tense relationship with former President Trump. So the big question would be, if he landed on the floor, would uh, Trump direct his uh, supporters to block Emmer, or uh, are the negotiations said to be going on now? <laughs> Unbelievable. So <laughs> now this Trump thing is all about the fact that Emmer uh, voted to certify the election, right? He has publicly been a Trump supporter at every turn otherwise. Pretty much so, although he's he's kind of at, at times uh, uh, suggested when he was head of the political arm for the Republicans that uh, members should sometimes worry about their districts more than uh, pacifying Trump. That's kind of set off some uh, uh, suggestions. There's tension. But right, he and Austin Scott are the only two of the nine who... Uh, did not go along with certifying both Arizona and Pennsylvania uh, in the uh, 2020 election. And that's all it takes uh, in this, I guess, modern Republican Party here. So you're in for a long one, I guess, uh, Billy. Nine speeches. Do they do they get a clock on these at the candidates form? Or do they each get five or ten minutes? Or how does it how does it work? My understanding, they op each open up with about a two-minute statement. Then they have the group yeah. uh uh, question and answer, then a closing statement of about a minute. Excellent. Uh, great to have you back, Billy. If you're curious, by the way, to see the most authentic shot on Capitol Hill, join us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. You can watch this program now, and you can see Billy House in the spot where it all happens in the House Gallery. It's great to see you, Billy, the most authentic Congress reporter in the appropriate setting. As we add Terry Haynes to the mix, I thought about you all weekend. Terry Haynes, Pangea Policy founder, uh, because we've had such great conversations around all this. And Terry is actually one of the only people in the Capitol who understands uh, this, uh, the way this works with a speaker uh, pro tem. He helped to write the language here um, after 9-11 as a senior House staffer and has a different view than some folks do about all of this. And we'll probably get to that Terry, because we still have two resolutions ready to go that would make Patrick McHenry an empowered speaker. But we're going to go through the motions here all over again. Hold, hold the chain of command conversation because we have nine people who think they should hold that gavel, yet none of them seem to have a path to 217. Is this a total waste of time, exercise in futility this week, or does someone emerge as a potential speaker? 
you know, I think it's uh, I think it's less likely rather than more likely that we get a speaker this week. But the uh, wow. uh, because I think, frankly, people aren't exhausted enough. Uh, what you had in the first two rounds essentially were very known quantities that had a great deal of support from what I'll call the uh, the purest wing of the uh, of the House Republican Conference. Uh, we don't have that this time. What we have are a bunch of uh, folks that can put themselves up as compromise candidates, including Mr. Emmer, uh, who's the, by far the most uh, uh, well-known of them, as you said, and as Billy said. But, you know, the essential problem's the same, which is, you know, it, there's no obvious path to 217, number one. Number two, it's very unlikely that the vast majority of these people, other than Mr. Emmer, have the ability, uh, have the experience, I should say, with everybody in the House uh, to feel kind of trusted enough that there's actually a, uh, uh, a track record there that they, you know, that would make folks on the centrist wing and the purist wing feel that uh, they would have a decent speaker. Uh, so I, I, I think we're going to go through this uh, exercise, and what we're going to have is after two rounds where the more conservative, well-known candidates don't do well, you're going to have a, uh, a group of folks that, you know, frankly, aren't senior enough uh, or trusted enough, and then we'll get down to brass tacks and figure out what the, uh, the, who that is. Uh, who the next speaker is for real. Uh, they may jump over that and end up with Emmer. That's entirely possible, but it doesn't feel like that mm -hmm. right now. Yeah, fewer than uh, was seven of the nine hmm. have been in Congress fewer than 10 years, which I find interesting. You write in your note to clients, Terry, there's no forcing event requiring House Republicans to act immediately. And you point to November 17th, which of course is uh, the date of a government shutdown. There are many in the Republican conference who are not phased by that. And I wonder if it's a potential invasion of Gaza that actually lights the fire here and creates new urgency under this process when resources will be badly needed in Israel. And that supplemental budget request the president's making has to be dealt with. Well, I wouldn't say it's the uh, the let me answer it this way. The I wouldn't say it's the Gaza invasion. I would say it's the pro the, the prospect of. Uh, expansion into a regional war. If you get some sort of serious mm. pushback in, uh, through the Golan Heights or something, and it becomes clear that Israel is going to be in a two-front war here, uh, then uh, then I think uh, you know things get booted along pretty well. Uh, firstly, secondly, uh, I think the the president's request alone isn't enough to do it. Uh, as as of yesterday, anyway, I haven't seen anything different. Uh, the formal request in its entirety still hasn't gone to the Senate or the Congress. Uh, it's gone. Part of it's gone to the Senate, uh, the foreign aid part, mm -hmm. but the, the border stuff has not. And uh, so I think that uh, the Senate is, is, by the way, is intends to try to start dealing with the request, not this week, but next week. So and the, the Senate, I think, is far more likely to shape uh, the final the final version of the aid requests for Israel and Ukraine than the House is. So, you know, the, the House, I think, has got, frankly, got another couple of weeks where they can be on the sidelines and things don't matter very much uh, uh, yeah. from a uh, from a policy perspective, frankly. Terry Punchbowl is reporting that Donald Trump and Tom Emmer spoke on Saturday. Uh, we know that uh, Donald Trump's apparently not a fan because Emmer voted to certify the election. Uh, it's you can you can have a whole separate conversation about that. But to what extent after the implosion we saw 
with the Jordan endorsement. To what extent does Donald Trump matter here? I think Trump matters in the sense that uh, that no matter who the the nominee is, uh, that he can't uh, he can't go strong negative, and that's probably what on on the nominee, and that's probably what Emmer is trying to foreclose. You know, I haven't said you you know Billy, you and Billy talked about this and and put it very well, but. I haven't seen anything that indicate like hard, sort of hard evidence to indicate that uh, that Emmer is uh, you know sort of hard over negative on Trump, and you know and, I've been, and a lot of people have been probing from a lot of different uh, points of view. So you know Trump and Emmer probably need to be generally good with each other to go forward. You don't want the the person who's uh, the former president and the person leading in the polls for the for the next nomination. Uh, to to be negative on you, uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, Emmer doesn't need to be captured by Trump either. So there's there, there's got to be a uh, kind of an uneasy truce that goes forward here. Well, as we try to figure out points of influence, then Terry, Kevin McCarthy endorsed Tom Emmer. He talked about it yesterday on Meet the Press. Some folks thought that was like getting the the cover of the the front of the Wheaties box here. Uh, does that help or hurt Tom Emmer to have Kevin McCarthy's support? Uh, I think that probably helps, frankly. You, you have, again, you know, everybody knows the math, but you've got, you know, 95% of the conference uh, who would have been fine with uh, with having McCarthy stay in the in the seat anyway. Uh, so to have yeah. McCarthy in your corner and is is important. Number one, number two, by implication. Uh, McCarthy and others can can also weigh in uh, with Trump uh, to just say, hey, look, you know, just, to, you know, back off the guy. He's all right uh, in so many words. And uh, I think that's very likely <laughs> happening. So what do you think of this process? They go back into 1100 Longworth tonight. I believe that's the Ways and Means Committee room. Close the doors at 630. Everybody gets a couple of minutes. We've got nine to go through here, Terry. And the voting uh, will leave someone off the island in each round. What do you make of the process here based on what we've seen not work already? Um, I think the process is, allows the process allows aggregation. Let me put it that way. Uh, you know, okay. to, to the extent that any of the other eight have support, uh, no matter how small, uh, they can help Emmer actually roll up a pretty a pretty large vote. If they then say, "Okay, if it's not me, it's going to be Emmer," let's say, and Emmer is, I think, working on that assumption as well. That one way he can uh, he can present himself very strongly. Uh, is to make sure that uh, the other candidates are available to endorse him. And I think the vast majority of them will either explicitly or implicitly endorse him. So he ought to be in a pretty good position going in. So we are back to, uh, you know, unlike the last two rounds where we're back, where the the centrists essentially uh, exercise some power to make sure that uh, that the speaker wasn't going to end up being too conservative and put the majority mm-hmm. and them personally in some peril. I think we're in a position here where Emmer's going to try to uh, you know, be a little bit more of a tabula rasa and appeal across the board huh. uh, lightly, but but across the board. Uh, it's the best gambit he's got, so he might as well shoot it. Well, as you make clear uh, in in your note to clients, and as you just said, you don't think we're going to have this solved this week. And I only have 30 seconds left here, uh, Terry. Does that mean Patrick McHenry drops a CR on the floor to avoid a shutdown if it comes to it? 
Uh, if it comes to it, yeah, but we've we've still got three or four weeks left to go. And you know, as I've, I've said before, and we'll say again, uh, when yep. there is an actual crisis, whether it's a CR or an invasion of Israel or whatever it is, uh, you're going to see this whole uh, we we can't act because there's no speaker thing uh, get dropped like a hot potato. You heard it again from Terry Haynes. He helped to write the rules. And we appreciate that. Look at McHenry. He drops that gavel every time. Join us on YouTube so you can see Patrick McHenry and Terry Haynes. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Should the Republican-led House start taking cues, maybe some direction, from what happened in 1855? We talked about this back in January when Kevin McCarthy went 15 rounds. Remember, they said, how long could this go on for? Try two months. That's what happened in 1855. Libby Cantrell at PIMCO is writing about it in her note to clients today. The deeply divided house took more than two months after 21 candidates vied for the speakership. And get this, 133 rounds. Might take us a minute to break that record. Ultimately, Representative Banks of Massachusetts beat Representative Aiken of South Carolina 103 to 100. That was six years before the Civil War. And as Libby writes, Congress, as the nation, was deeply divided over slavery, immigration, more broadly, the future of the republic. Is that starting to sound familiar? Let's assemble our panel. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano join. Bloomberg Politics contributors with the view from both sides of the aisle. It's great to see you both here. We got through another weekend, but we still have no speaker. And Rick, I'll start with you. Nine up here for the candidates forum tonight. Will anything happen this week that didn't happen last week? Yeah, I think my bet would be you'd see 
uh, it's kind of a reoccurrence, uh, the, the Groundhog Day uh, effect, hmm. uh, where the somebody will win, you know, a plurality, you know, of the Republican caucus, get the nomination, probably Emmer first round up. You'll go down the floor yep. and you'll you'll get nowhere near 217 votes. So, you know, nowhere near. depends on how long he wants to stay in. So he'll he'll get as many votes as he wants until he realizes he can't get to 217 and we'll do it all over again. Um, I think yeah. the point Terry made earlier was that if you think we're going to have a speaker this week, um, you're you're probably much more optimistic than anybody else on Capitol Hill. So it's shades of 1855, Jeannie. Do we go 133 rounds? I mean, I guess at a certain point here, you, you just wonder how long we could go without a speaker. I know we've got a government shutdown set for November 17th, but hey, we could roll right through that too. Yeah, Joe, I, I like how you're saying, you know, on the bright side, we're not just, you know, on the, on the cusp of the Civil War. That's pretty much <laughs> the optimistic view of this. And, you know, yeah. the reality is, is that unless they are prepared to lock the doors when they go into that caucus this week and keep them shut in there with no breaks until they get to 217 and promise not to violate their pledge when they come out to the floor, we aren't going to see a speaker this week. And of course, they're not going to do that. Nobody is close to getting 217 at this point, as far as we can tell. So we are right back where we started from, what, 20 days ago now. And the reality is, is that they are going to have to either agree to put party above self or they are going to have to go with a temporary, you know, um, speaker, you know, potentially a McHenry, a speaker yeah. pro temp, more powers. Because, of course, we are, what, eight legislative days from November 17th when our government shuts down, amongst many other things that are looming very closely ahead. So we've still got our eyes on Patrick McHenry then, Rick, and I wonder what... You think about Terry's view on that. Uh, we know how Terry feels. He thinks that that Patrick McHenry could just start acting like the speaker today, bring a bill to the floor. The language allows for it. Is that how this ends? It could. I mean, I think Terry's point about you need an action forcing event like the CR winding out or some other mm -hmm. uh, important event to make things happen. And by the way, that's always the case in the House of Representatives. They never get their work done early. And so I think that's one prerequisite. <laughs> Two, um, it really does, it's kind of like a, a shame that Patrick McHenry is where he is because he knows that if he starts acting like speaker and starts taking on the role, that he's doomed within his own caucus, right? He is one of these guys who's actually pretty well liked amongst everybody. He gets a lot done. Yeah, He cut these deals with Biden on uh, debt limits and things like that. And, and he's having the time of his life and his career. And now he's in a job where everyone's going to hate him no matter what he does. And so <laughs> I think he's just shocked that he's found himself in this position. You see his interviews and he's forlorn as to what he's supposed to do. And by the way, nobody's giving him advice, right? The former speaker McCarthy mm. says, no, we want Emmer now. Oh, but we wanted Jordan then. We, I, I mean, like they want their own people. No one's saying, uh, hey, why don't you do this? Uh, and the yes. Democrats are just waiting to laugh about it. So I, I think it's he's stuck in a really intolerable position. He's basically going to have to decide that, you know, it's more important to act like a speaker than to, than to have a, a comfy relationship with his own caucus.
Well, we may find out how much of a grown-up he, he really is, if that's the case. Uh, we heard from Michael McCall over the weekend, the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs. He was talking on ABC this week about the state of affairs around the world uh, creating its own level of urgency. Unclear if it's enough. To your point, though, Rick, there could be some event that spawns action here on Capitol Hill. McCall thinks it's already happening. I want a speaker in the chair so we can move forward and govern my issues, my committee of war and peace. Uh, it's too dangerous right now. It, the world's on fire. And this is so dangerous what we're doing. And most importantly, it's embarrassing uh, because it empowers and emboldens our adversaries like Chairman Xi, who says, you know, democracy doesn't work. The world is on fire right now. Uh, Rick, what's the approach? If you're a candidate standing before the Republican conference tonight, what do you have to say about Israel and Ukraine, never mind Taiwan and border security, as the president wants to put all these together into one bill? He had Mitch McConnell out over the weekend supporting this. What do you have to say to get support in the House on this matter? Yeah, look, I think generally speaking, the House is uh, willing to receive these kinds of uh, uh, offers. Uh, we heard from Terry that it's no, there's not a lot of clarity around the border uh, situation. and But that's like protecting the United States' as democracy, right? I mean, like we talk yeah. about putting money into Taiwan, putting money into Ukraine, putting money into, into, into Israel to protect their democracies. The border money is to protect our democracy. So they have a lot of, mm -hmm. you know, sort of, uh, connective tissue that uh, exists there. And and I think that's all these guys have to do is say, look, I don't really care which one of these that you care most about. You ought to care about our country most and our position in the world. And we're under assault by all these other pretenders uh, and we've yeah. got to do something about it. And this is the time. The reality is it doesn't matter how many of them dissent. If you had an open vote, you'd have 300 people vote for this you know, combined bill in the House of Representatives. It's just the crazy eights and others who don't want to see government act on anything <laughs> who are trying to hold yeah. up the process. You've got $60 billion in there for Ukraine, though, Jeannie. Would the message tonight not be break it up? Let's get standalone votes on Israel, Ukraine, Taiwan, and yes, by God, border security. Wouldn't that be a standing O in the room? Or is that just Matt Gates clapping? Yeah, you'd have some, you'd probably have those eight clapping. The reality is, is that they do not have the votes to pass this. And so they are going to have to struggle to move this forward. And, you know, the it's fascinating because you'd think on the one hand, what happened last week, both sides tired each other out by voting down their favored candidates. And yet that doesn't seem to happen. Terry just said they're not exhausted. I don't know what it's going to take to get these folks exhausted, but we're all exhausted watching this. And so <laughs> they need to look around the world and see, to McCall's point, what is going on. And what struck me this weekend was over and over for the first time we heard the word from Republicans that they are embarrassed. We've been using that word, but they haven't. And so maybe that's a sign of exhaustion coming. But if it's not, we are in for more of this until they decide. And in the meantime, you've got Ukraine, you've got Israel, you've got the border, all of these issues, not to mention Taiwan. And we've got a government that is shutting down in, you know, just about eight working days. Incredible. It's incredible to think about. Patrick McHenry, uh, he's just going to be swinging that gavel harder and harder and harder. 
until this is resolved. Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis, uh, great to have you both with us here. As we turn to the campaign trail coming up, Israel is having an impact in the Republican primary. And we've got new numbers out today that for the first time codify what Rick and Jeannie were talking about. RFK Jr. splitting off from the Democrats to run an independent campaign appears to be having an impact on Donald Trump. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. The conflict in Israel is finally having an impact on the Republican campaign trail as candidates look for any opportunity to find daylight between them in a race that is still deadlocked here. And we're going to look at new numbers coming up uh, to show just how well Donald Trump is doing uh, with regard to the rest of the field, though RFK Jr. remains a bit of a question mark. Let's reassemble our panel. Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are with us, Bloomberg Politics contributors. As we see a new ad drop, I don't know if you guys saw this coming from uh, the Never Back Down pack. This is the Ron DeSantis pack. He's trying to go after Nikki Haley, remembering that she was the uh, U.N. ambassador on the matter of Israel and what he apparently sees as her history of supporting Palestinian causes. You can hear the ad. It's called Nikki Flip Flops. Governor Haley, do you believe that it advances U.S. interests to provide food, jobs, homes to the people of the West Bank and Gaza? Yes, I mean, I think that we need to do whatever we can to protect the region anytime that we can help mankind, regardless of where they are and what country they're in. It's essentially a string of comments from her on video in that first instance testifying as U.N. ambassador on Capitol Hill. Uh, Rick, what do you make of this among candidates who really probably don't have much difference when it comes to the issue of Israel? Will this get to be a louder element on the campaign trail? You know, I don't think so. I think this is more representative of kind of a, you know, flagging campaign by Ron DeSantis to try and figure out who's next to him that he can try to run down in order to pick up some extra oxygen votes uh, in Iowa. He's he's having a hard time moving now past his sort of 15 percent that we see in the polls a lot uh, in Mm -hmm. in Iowa, uh, even less in New Hampshire. I think by and large, Nikki Haley is over uh, taking him in New Hampshire and, and of course, is considered one of the two favorite sons for South Carolina. So he's in a tough spot. Uh, He's not running against Donald Trump anymore. He's trying to be now, you know, preserve his second place, which I think is, is, is pretty much over. So uh, he's got a narrow uh, focus here. I doubt if much is going to get picked up on this. Uh, Remember she's Mm -hmm. saying all these things is she represented the Trump administration, an attack on Nikki Haley is an attack on Donald Trump. Uh, Most of these guys aren't got stomach for that. So she's got some protection in that regard. Well, we've got new numbers out uh, from USA Today, Suffolk University, uh, Jeannie, Trump 58, DeSantis 12. This is your 46% lead. Haley 11. So DeSantis and Haley uh, essentially tied here. And it's the hypothetical that's getting all the talk. We've talked about the impact or not that RFK Jr. could have on this race, and it seems to be bearing out here with the headline in USA Today today. It's a tie. With a year to go, Joe Biden, Donald Trump each command 37% of the vote 
In a hypothetical matchup as independent Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Jeannie cost Donald Trump what would have been his narrow lead. So if you were wondering the impact, it plays out in this poll. How much of a problem for Trump is RFK Jr.? You know, I think he is an enormous problem. And and the fact is, and, and you know, the Clinton folks can tell you this um, from their go at the presidential election in 2016, when the elections are going to be as tight as we expect this one will be in 2024, an independent candidate like an RFK Jr. or in the case of 2016 for Hillary Clinton and Jill Stein in one or two of these tight states can be the difference of a few thousand votes, which costs you the Electoral College. So I think critically important for these candidates is to watch the state by state polls on this. And that's where you can see this costing enough votes to move the Electoral College. And so I think this is an enormous concern for the Trump folks. What's fascinating is when RFK entered this race, it was the Biden folks who were terribly concerned. I, by the way, think they still need to be concerned um, because again, a few thousand votes can cost him a state like Pennsylvania or Arizona or Minnesota or Michigan. But now it's the Trump folks feeling the same heat and that has got to be a concern. Mm -hmm. You predicted this, uh, Rick Davis, when RFK Jr. left the Democratic field to run as an independent. Is, is there going to be a race now between RFK and Trump to seize on the vaccine denier vote? Yeah, no, it's a it's a tricky calculus for Trump. Trump tends to run against everybody all the time. So this is mm-hmm. kind of not unwelcome to him. Uh, I would say it comes at a bad time for Trump because he does seem to be making up some headway with independent voters. And now all of a sudden, you know, they've got an independent to vote for. And so they may grab certainly the more conservative ones may gravitate that way. Um, I, I think a lot of this, though, just has to be reminded constantly. We're in a deadlock in the country. Right. Jeannie mentioned the 2016 uh, election, almost dead, even uh, 2020 mm-hmm. election, almost dead, even this one is going to be almost dead even, no matter who the nominees of the two parties are. Uh, So I think that that (laughs) that one of the things that we're going to be talking about a lot is the effect of these third party candidates. I would say Cornell West has as much potential impact in a state that's key (laughs) to Joe Biden like Michigan than JFK would have uh, against Donald Trump, even though it could it could manifest itself more nationally. And then we're all holding our breath to see what happens with those no label guys. Uh, because yeah. they enter this race and you have more capacity for, you know, third party candidates than you even have today. That's right. Uh, Jeannie, talk to me about Cornell West. He's got 4% in this poll. Rick was very eloquent there. 4% is enough to tip a race in a state like Michigan or Georgia. How concerned should Joe Biden be about this? Very concerned. It is the same argument and the real concern with Cornell West. It is a concern that he is going to pull not just from Democrats overall, which he could mm-hmm. in tight states, but also young people who are very attracted to somebody like Cornell West, to people on the progressive left who are the activists in the party, the people who get out to vote, and young people. And anytime you're talking about Democrats, there's two constituencies you cannot afford to lose. 
young people yeah. and African-Americans. So those are the yeah. two you always want to watch in these polls. And Joe Biden has a huge problem in both of those areas, particularly young people. And so this is something they have been trying to combat. But how they do that is very, very challenging, given the negatives Biden has, which is one he can't surmount, which is his age. <laughs> Unreal. I hope you're listening to Rick and Jeannie. If all this stuff happens, if everybody jumps in, we get a no labels candidate. It is going to be a circus next year. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We are in the same place now we were on Friday. There are just more members looking for the gavel. Nine, as we told you, and joined in studio here ahead of our conversation with Mick Mulvaney uh, by Jack Fitzpatrick. Bloomberg government eats and breathes this stuff. You're supposed to be reporting on the budgeting process, of course, appropriations, but we can't do that because we can't do anything until this is solved. It's interesting, though, with your experience covering Capitol Hill, you know all nine of these members. Tom Emmer seems to be the closest thing to a front runner. If you're the majority whip and you can't close this deal, can anyone? Well, they've been having trouble counting votes Not lately, true. even before Emmer was running for speaker. So that's yeah, there, there are plenty of difficulties. Um, also, you could say the same thing about Steve Scalise, right? But yes. The point is, Scalise. these are the guys with the phone numbers and the relationships. Yeah. So if they can't do it, who can? I, it's it's an almost impossible task, especially for anybody with that much of a record. Mm -hmm. So Scalise was too establishment, evidently. Jim Jordan was, had, had too, made too many enemies. Um, they are looking for a fresh face, but it's very difficult to get a fresh face with the relationships to build upon, with the established ability to count votes. 
Emmer's also a big X factor. I don't know if he's a favorite or, or what, because you have to decide, well, well, former President Trump has to decide exactly what their relationship is, yes. if he's going to help him or hurt him. Yeah. Um, it, it, you know, if, if he is seen, if Emmer is seen as the next face of the establishment, mm-hmm. that's not a good thing for him. So it, he really could swing <laughs> either way, but he's a very big name, clearly. What do you make of this effort by his office to kind of show him as a Trump guy? He's even got a picture, framed photo of him in the office, but he voted to certify the election, and that's a mortal sin, right? I, I think we're in the process of defining what is the mortal sin, what defines your relationship to Trump. Okay. Is it the vote on the 2020 certification? Yeah. Is it other policy issues? Emmer was not somebody who was impossible to work with among Republicans in Congress, but Trump needs to decide which slights are deal breakers to him. And yeah, I mean, Emmer, Emmer is not quite as closely tied to Trump as somebody like Byron Donalds. But sure, they have, yeah. he, Trump has to define what kills a relationship, what burns that bridge. Didn't we learn last week that it doesn't matter or Jim Jordan would be speaker? Right? Uh, Trump endorsed him, supposedly worked for him. The, he lost. The Trump endorsement is not everything. It, yeah. and, and as we learned with Jordan, it, you could be the closest to Trump. You could be Trump's favorite. But that does not necessarily ingratiate you with members of the Armed Services Committee, the Appropriations oh, right. Committee, yeah. Swing District members. So you need, to, uh, you need to have a very, very wide reach. There's not one single kingmaker who picks somebody here. All right. I have to, whenever you come and ask you one super wonky question, uh, because you're Jack and you can answer it. I love it. Spending bill is supposed to originate in the House. Uh, looks like the Senate is actually going to do this uh, when it comes to this $100 billion plus supplemental budget request the president has. We've talked about it a lot on this broadcast that in- includes a bunch of stuff, including Israel and Ukraine. Uh, there's a way, though, for them to, to use a different vehicle to get this done, send it over to the House while still playing by the rules? They have not decided, to my knowledge, on a vehicle, but the Senate sometimes will take a House-passed bill. They are supposed to, or at least traditionally, they have limited themselves to relevant appropriations bills. Okay. Um, I'd point out that the Constitution itself specifically says it's tax bills that are supposed to originate in the House, and then there was a long tradition of saying, well, that's any money bill. Okay. So really, this is a matter of what traditions you set, what traditions you follow. Mm -hmm. If the Senate says it's doing this, what really matters is, do they have the support to move quickly? A lot of the time, they rely on unanimous consent to get things moving quickly in the Senate. So it's more a matter of the politics of the Senate than a a piece of the Constitution. For our listeners and viewers to understand, though, they would take a House-passed bill Essentially do a big highlight, big copy, delete, put in their own language, pass it, send it back. Yeah. Tradition, the tradition is it's an HR something. Okay. House yeah. bill, one, two, 100, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a matter of the Constitution and also tradition. And, you know, is there a point of order raised by somebody in the Senate that they have to work through? Uh, but yes, they, it is not that unusual for the Senate. It's unusual, but it's not unheard of for the Senate to say, you know what, we're actually going to act quickly now. We're going to take (laughs) the lead. That really is more a matter of 
right now there are a lot of senators who say the House isn't able to do anything. Mm -hmm. They want to take control. There are a number of Republican senators who do want Ukraine funding to be attached in this next big spending bill. It's the politics that drive it. And if they decide, you know what, we can find something and copy and paste our bill into that House passed bill, Mm -hmm. that is in line with tradition, basically. Great stuff. I love it. Good to see you, Jack Fitzpatrick, as always. We'd probably get fired if we had this conversation anywhere other than Bloomberg, uh, which I love. We put our wonky hats on whenever uh, Jack comes to join us here in the studio. Uh, Mick Mulvaney must have a wonk hat hidden somewhere, obviously based on his resume. He knows all about it. It's good to see you, sir. Back with us here uh, on Bloomberg. He helped to found the Freedom Caucus. He also helped to run the Trump White House as acting chief of staff, and he carried a lot of other business cards while he was at it. But Mick knows the players we're talking about here Nine more up to bat tonight here. Mick, I'm not even sure where to start with you. My goodness, you must you must look forward to these conversations on Mondays. What are they going to ask me to predict now? The fact is, Joe, it seems to be getting more complicated, isn't it? I do look forward to these conversations because you never know what you're going to get. Um, is it more complicated? Right. Yeah, because your introduction is not entirely right. I don't know all okay. these guys. Um, okay. and, and that by itself should tell you something. Okay, there's a couple of folks mm. who, you know, I know of them, but I didn't spend any time with them because a lot of them didn't get there to 2017, 2019. Or I think in the case of Byron Donalds might have been uh, sworn in in 2021. So these are brand new people vying to be Speaker of the House. Doesn't mean you can't do a good job. I think it makes it harder. Um, but what it does mean is that you're really an unknown quantity. Um, look, the, the simple fact there's nine people running means that there is no perceived front runner. I, I like Tom Emmer. I think Tom Emmer may be a great speaker. He's certainly a member of leadership. But if his entry into the race um, cleared the field, um, it didn't, uh, which means that not mm-hmm. everybody sees him as the front runner. Yeah, I, I guess we're going to do uh, a candidates forum here with with all nine. They get a couple of minutes to speak to the room. Mick, this is not a very friendly crowd, though, right? We heard stories last week of people yelling, uh, F-words being thrown around, uh, people getting pretty feisty uh, at 1100 Longworth. What's going to happen when the doors close? Yeah, no, that's the Matt Gates thing. I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's, it's not broad yet. It's, it's broader than it should be. Don't get me wrong. But yeah. a lot of the stories you heard, and some of it came from McCarthy, about how you know a lot of folks want to shout at Matt Gates. I think that's probably fair. It's not just Matt, but. That's sort of yeah. emblematic of, of, of that that particular subgroup of the caucus. My question is this. And we talk about Matt Gates, we're really talking about the seven or eight people that voted against McCarthy. Can anybody that mm-hmm. they support get elected? That's my question. Because if I'm, you know, if I'm mm-hmm. Don Bacon and I know Don, and Don is a really good guy. And if I'm Don Bacon and my objection is that I don't want to reward Matt Gates for taking out Kevin McCarthy, am I going to vote for anybody that Matt Gates is okay with? This was what hurt Jim Jordan. Um, and conversely, does anybody that Matt Gates and his group doesn't like have a, the ability to get the votes because they seem to want to vote as a block? So it's a really yeah. bizarre kind of dynamic where I'm not sure they got 217 for anybody right now. In fact, I don't know if I told you this or not. I, I lose track of who I told the stories to. I talked to Mark Amaday, one of the funniest members of Congress. He's from Nevada. And I talked to him last week. He said, Mick, we don't have 217 votes for Jesus, Mary and Joseph put together. So um, it's going to be uh, an interesting. So good luck, uh, Tom Emmer. Yeah, good luck this afternoon, boys. Have a great time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's Libby Cantrell uh, writes uh, effectively in her latest note to clients that I've been referring to a bit today, Mick. Uh, 
is the longer the house is without a speaker, the more the house becomes the price taker, not the price setter. Talking about whatever the Senate might be about to send over in terms of a supplemental budget request that we know is going to top $100 billion. Do you agree with this general uh, uh, conventional wisdom? The longer this goes, the more likely it is that's going to pass. Yeah. And a more like, and I think, by the way, I hadn't thought of it in that terms, but that's, that is the exact right way to look at it. If your markets, what do you think what, you're wondering what's going to pass exactly what yep. the president asked? That's it. Whatever, 110, 210, pick a number, 1.4 trillion. It doesn't make any difference right now. It's going to pass uh, because the Senate will pass it as is. There'll be enough Republican votes to go along with this. Keep in mind the, uh, I think the lion's share, if not the majority of the money is actually Ukraine money, not as not Israel money. Um, yeah, but it's going it. to pass 60 billion. And then the house is, is too chaotic. It, 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 it's, and it's not that it's just chaotic, Joe. It's, it's that when you're spending all your time talking about the speakership, it's hard to then switch gears and have substantive disagreements on policy with a bill. You just, you, you lose the moral high ground when you can't get your, your act together. So there's going to be probably, you know, enough Democrats, uh, Republicans who will vote with any, every Democrat that if it comes to the floor on the House, um, it'll pass. Now, that's going to be part of the discussion right tonight is the conservatives, fiscal conservatives mm -hmm. are going to want to know from each of the nine contenders, how do you propose to deal with a supplemental spending bill? And how do you propose right. to deal with the government funding bill? That's going to be a big part of the conversation this evening. So the only answer for that room is break them up, right? You're going to say, if I'm speaker, I will not, I will vote individually on Israel, Ukraine, Taiwan, and the border. Is that not the winning answer? It's part of the winning answer, but then what happens when nothing passes? And not listen, you can afford technically not to pass anything for Ukraine and Israel. It's a huge political price to pay. Don't get me wrong. And I'm not suggesting it, but the world doesn't really end in Washington, D.C. if you don't fund Ukraine and Israel, at least for a short mm -hmm. period of time. If you don't fund the government, the government shuts down. And you know, I've talked about how that's not nearly as big a deal in the real world as people think it is, but Washington's not the real world. They think it's the end of the world up there if the government shuts down. So yeah, you might be able to play checkers and say, look, we're going to make sure that every approach bill comes to the floor individually. We're going to yeah. make sure we separate the vote, separate out the voting for Ukraine and for Israel. But at the end of the day, it's coming back married up from the Senate. What are you going to do then? Are you not going to do anything? You're going to shut the government down. You're going to take what the Senate sends you. If the government's set to shut down, we've been talking about this and you've heard the conversation, will Patrick McHenry be the one to come to the rescue? Terry Haynes at Pangea says they wrote the rules in the wake of 9-11. He could bring a bill to the floor right now if he wanted to. And this whole conversation about powers of pro tem will be quickly forgotten if we have to act immediately. Do you agree with that? I have certainly heard that, okay? Let me give you the other side, and I don't have a strong feeling yeah. one way or the other. I don't think anybody's got a strong feeling because we're in such uncharted waters. But the other side of the argument is this, and the better example is the funding bill uh, as opposed to, say, the Ukraine and uh, the Ukraine uh, aid bill. So let's say the funding bill goes through under this temporary authority of Patrick yes. McHenry. And let's CR, say that included right? is a CR, and, but included is there is a yeah. policy that treats uh, Bloomberg Corporation very poorly, costs you guys hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars, thousands of jobs. There's a policy change. I don't know what it might be, but you can imagine the situation. Are you going to sit back and take it or are you going to sue? 
And are you going to file a lawsuit saying that Congress was not properly constituted and that this law is null and void that negatively impacts me? Regardless of whether or not that's a meritorious claim in the long run, it's going to add added uncertainty to what comes out of that building. And that is not good right now. So I think everybody wow. prefers that they not go the pro tem way because it is so murky. And while your other commentator may be absolutely right, it may take us six months yeah. or a year to the courts to figure out if that were the case or not. Isn't that something? Just what we need now, a court challenge. Spending time with Mick Mulvaney, I have to ask you, Mick, before you go, about the Trump effect. Uh, there's concern that he's going to, I guess, somehow work against Tom Emmer because Emmer voted to certify the election. Uh, yeah. Do you believe that? Would it even matter? Wouldn't Jim Jordan be speaker if it did? Well, it, you know, Trump, it's always easier to create than it is, excuse me, to destroy than it is create. And, and Trump is much better at making sure, uh, telling you who's not going to be elected than he is telling you who's hmm. going to be elected. Okay, he can prevent <laughs> okay. somebody from winning in an election, but he's shown a spotty, you know, record on on getting people across the finish line. Go look at the Georgia Senate races for for evidence of that. So I, I think he wasn't able to get the votes for for Jim Jordan. That shows Trump's limitations inside the building. Keep in mind, this is a very personal vote. This is not a policy vote. This is who you want to be mm -hmm. your leader. And people are a lot more willing to push back on Donald Trump on this than they might be on immigration or taxes. Um, so I don't think Trump has the ability to get anybody across the finish line, but he might have the juice to prevent it from from um, from going to Mr. Emmer. Now, that being said, you're, you asked yeah. a question of your previous guest as to how long are you on the outs with Trump. You're only on the outs yeah. uh, with Trump as so long as you want to be. You can always get back on the right. island. Mick Mulvaney the knows firsthand, by the way. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. It was the first televised interview of the five eyes. Did you see this on 60 Minutes last evening? They're all sitting around the same table with Scott Pelley. The five eyes. This is the Intelligence Alliance, intelligence leaders from the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and New Zealand. And they got together to issue a warning on China. First person I thought of was Craig Singleton at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, who talked to us just a couple of weeks ago about his op-ed in the Washington Post about the activities that China's been up to here, opening civilian installations ports, different operations in different countries that are being morphed into military installations and in some cases used for spying from the get-go. Scott Pelley asked all five if they see this happening in their countries. Christopher Ray, the head of the FBI, gave him an answer about the U.S. We've seen a variety of efforts by uh, Chinese businesses, some cases state-owned enterprises, in some cases ostensibly private companies, attempting to acquire businesses, land, infrastructure, what have you, in the United States in a way that presents national security concerns. Craig Singleton is with us now, senior fellow at the foundation. It's good to see you, Craig. Thanks for coming back in. I want to ask you about new research that you have on EVs that very much play into what we're talking about here. But I wonder, with regard to your recent op-ed, what you've already submitted and talked to us about here, what it means to have the five eyes acknowledge that together in an interview like that for mainstream Americans to watch while they're sitting at home on a Sunday night. 
Thanks, Joe. I mean, I think the, the big takeaway for me was that the issue is so serious and so ubiquitous uh, that these uh, intelligence officials who spend their whole careers largely in the shadows felt the need to talk and communicate directly uh, with the American people and with people around the world about the scope of this threat and how China is using all levers of its national power to undermine Western influence, not just the United States, but its partners around the world. And it's doing so by exploiting these legal and regulatory cleavages that exist um, largely from the Cold War that just haven't kept up with the new ways that our adversaries like China and Russia, even Iran, mm -hmm. are going about trying to steal our secrets or our intellectual property. Well, and what you're learning now through this new research by the foundation uh, would suggest that EVs are part of that. Beijing's power play is the headline on your report, safeguarding U.S. national security in the electric vehicle and battery industries. Craig, talk to us about this. The U.S. is trying to catch up with China, uh, but our, uh, our lack of progress here, I guess with relation to Beijing, is becoming a national security issue considering the goals that the Biden administration has put out for EV adoption, how does this play against the U.S. in your view? Absolutely. I mean, just as Huawei sought control in the telecommunications sector, uh, a Chinese company called CATL or C-A-T-L is strategically positioning itself to dominate our electric future. Uh, and it's a playbook we have seen before. And in the case of CATL, um, this is a company with deep ties to the Chinese Communist Party. The alarm bells are, are really already ringing. Uh, today, cattle and another Chinese battery behemoth called BYD may dominate the global EV market. Uh, cattle, uh, which is linked to forced labor, produces one in three uh, global EV batteries. BYD is set to overtake Tesla here soon as the largest producer of EVs in the world. And if that wasn't bad enough, these Chinese companies are expanding into our critical infrastructure, um, building out EV charging networks, and also these uh, this new cutting edge technology called energy storage solutions. These are massive Chinese batteries that are connected to our electrical grid, even though they are not subject to any stringent federal review or scrutiny, mm -hmm. and nor are the U.S. firms that are collaborating with them required to disclose those partnerships. And we already have seen these projects connected into our mainline infrastructure in Florida and Virginia, Texas and Nevada, and even at the Marine Corps base at Camp Lejeune, um, which is home to mm -hmm. a special unit, special military um, operations unit that is designed to evacuate uh, non-combatants from Taiwan in the case of uh, a potential Beijing invasion of Taiwan. And so it's just really madness. It's We've seen this movie before, and we're sort of letting it play out again. Well, this is incredible. So you're, you're talking about a lot more than an economic advantage here, Craig. This could, in fact, be uh, a cyber threat uh, and a threat on, on, on a national defense level that most people don't think about when we're talking EVs. Totally. I mean, behind the allure of EVs and green energy lies this potential Trojan horse, right? It's unvetted yeah. Chinese technology. It's highly vulnerable to cyber attacks, uh, and it could even result in potential sabotage against our electrical grid. And just like with Huawei, all of these risks are just immediate and undeniable. So numerous studies show that internet-connected EV batteries and chargers 
um, have the same um, sort of cybersecurity weaknesses that we see with large scale data breaches. You can even um, maliciously deploy malware onto your EV during charging and then monitor that EV user and even turn off their vehicle for months or even years after that initial infection. And those Chinese battery systems I mentioned are hardly safer. Uh, the potential malware could um, bring down entire electrical grids, studies show. Um, and the reality is that uh, we are already sort of deploying these systems across critical infrastructure without um, properly vetting them and without uh, really thinking through some of the negative sort of ramifications here. Pretty remarkable how much we how much time we spend on TikTok, uh, for instance, Craig, but not this. I'll point you to something that Donald Trump said. I never thought I'd be pointing Craig Singleton at Donald Trump, but he made a post, a video post on Truth Social talking about the UAW uh, contract negotiations, the auto workers strike. And he had a message for the workers in his own special way of speaking that Gets a bit to what we're talking about here, remembering that one of the real sticking points in the UAW negotiations actually comes down uh, to, to EVs, the government's policy, and the way these car companies are handling them. Here he is. You should not pay your dues because they're selling you to hell. You're going to be going to hell. You're not going to have any jobs. All those cars are going to be made in China, every one of them. You can forget it, Michigan. You can forget it. South Carolina, you can forget it, everybody. All of those cars are going to be made in China. Is there an element of truth to that, Craig, that our lack of progress in catching up with China will mean that many of these are, in fact, made in China, the cars and the batteries? I think the, the lessons from Huawei's deployment are really applicable here. Um, back then, um, mostly GOP-led states deployed Huawei gear as a means to address rural connectivity on the cheap. Huawei's products were the cheapest. They were ready to deploy. Um, and so as opposed to going with Ericsson or Nokia or Siemens or a mm -hmm. U.S. provider, we went with China. There are many sort of analogous uh, examples with the EV battle where the Chinese many years ago, going back to 2015, said in their strategic planning documents that if we control the EV and battery markets, we'll have leverage over the United States and it'll help us become an economic superpower. And I think now we're starting to see that play out where once again, the West was behind and the Chinese central planners in this case um, were sort of uh, ahead of themselves here. The question question is whether we want to rush into this green revolution and sort of embrace these untested Chinese technologies, or whether it's time to strategically hit pause and say, if we're going to deploy these things, can we do it safely? If not, uh, what are some potential alternatives, whether they're Korean, whether they're American made, wow. whether they're Japanese, yeah. that we can have confidence in that we're not sort of sacrificing our future national security for these short term energy goals? Well, this is important. I've got less than a minute left, Craig. Time goes by when you're learning stuff. Is the administration open to this conversation? I think a little bit. You know, they've been very slow to acknowledge the massive cybersecurity vulnerabilities that are associated with this EV build out. But the, the Department of Energy and particularly the national labs have put out um, some really interesting sort of scary research that shows just how easy this is. The question that we haven't sort of uh, grappled with here is, do you have to hit pause on some of these current systems and deployments uh, to assess their safety and security before you proceed? And here, 
I think uh, the administration has been slowly sort of dragging its feet uh, while staying very wedded to its broader EV goals. The question is, do we have an actual intelligence and technical assessment of this infrastructure, the cybersecurity vulnerabilities, and whether China can exploit them? The answer is no. Yeah. This is an area where policymakers can really start to, I think, like make some serious moves and real fast. He's worked in national security all over the world, and he's ours today. Craig, Craig Singleton, it's great to see you, Craig. Many thanks. Senior Fellow of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and an important conversation that we need to have here, even with all the madness and the chaos in Washington. Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.